And what a weekend it's been. I got to tell you, um, uh, I've had a very busy weekend just with uh, with family things and shopping and, and all those uh, things that keep all of us busy. But it's uh, as we head into the Christmas week, there's lots on our mind when you think about uh, just COVID, Christmas shopping, all the stresses of, of holiday season as, as it usually is. And we've got uh, not the greatest weather either. There's a lot uh, happening uh, nationally and provincially as well. This week on the West Block, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra joined uh, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson to discuss why the federal government is reintroducing travel restrictions when most Omicron spread in Canada is community-based. Mercedes also sat down with Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan to talk about her five-year plan to reshape military culture following the sexual misconduct scandal. Mercedes, thank you for joining us. Jazz, thanks so much for having me. So tell me, uh, I was listening to your uh, interview uh, this weekend on the West Block with Transport Minister Omar Allegra. Any chance you think we would we will see a change in the travel advisory in, in the short term in the next week, even two weeks, considering most transmissions appear to be occurring in communities and not international travel? Well, I mean, that's a great question. They brought the current restrictions in uh, that they were announcing late last week after we already knew that community transmission was an issue. And we actually um, were speaking to the doctors who give the health briefings here in Can- in Ottawa about this, uh, Dr. Tam and Dr. New. And they acknowledged that the number one source of spread and concern right now was, as you mentioned, community infections. Despite that, the government still brought in these these international travel regulations. So um, could there be more? Absolutely possible. Um, I kept pushing uh, Minister Algabra on this and asking him, you know, because people are worried about stuff like quarantine. And, and if they have to quarantine for 14 days, um, someone might be willing to kind of go through the challenges of navigating the airport and getting the PCR test. Um, but if they think they have to stay at home for 14 days, that could vastly change travel plans, people's work and all that kind of stuff. He wouldn't rule it out. He wouldn't say that it was going to happen. Uh, and we were just kind of chatting before the interview. Uh, I said to him, because we had to tape it on Friday mm-hmm. to go on Sunday. And I said, do you think this could date by Sunday? And he said, Mercedes, I don't know. Um, so that to me was an indicator that, and he said it as well on the record, on the air, that they are looking at the possibility of more restrictions. And their concern is that people could get stuck somewhere. So... Now, the, the talk uh, last week was uh, when, the, when the premiers and the prime minister and the ministers spoke uh, via phone that the prime minister and the federal government and the ministers were considering a travel ban, but the premiers pushed back saying, where's the science to prove that we need a ban? Um, at this particular point, uh, did, the, did the prime minister and his ministers have to backtrack initially because of that desire for a travel ban rather than the travel advisory that we have right now? How real was that? Or well, I've heard as well that there was a lot of pushback from the airline industry. I mean, I think they were considering the full range of options and considering everyone's different opinions and the potential consequences. Um, what you hear mostly from the scientific community is that travel bans don't actually work very well. Um, and so it was interesting when they brought in, in particular, the ban against the African countries. A lot of the scientists were saying, it's too late. Once it's here, it's here. Uh, and they were saying, well, we're just trying to slow down the number of cases that are coming into Canada. Canada. And to be 
be fair to the government, they were criticized very heavily by the Conservatives at the beginning of the pandemic for not shutting the borders earlier and implementing a travel ban. So this time they acted very quickly. Um, but the question is, you know, whether that will make a difference. And, and it seems to be that a lot of the scientists are saying that's not the case. So perhaps they felt the travel advisory um, was a bit of a, a middle ground to say, we're strongly advising you against travel. But keep in mind, even during the height of the pandemic, um, you could always come back to Canada as a Canadian. So you were never barred from leaving the country and returning. It was just made extremely difficult to do so because there was only certain airports you could fly into and because you had to do that 14-day quarantine. Um, but I think that the, the government at this point is trying to figure out if they do need to go further. Um, and and it, it is possible. And the other warning that we got from the transport minister was even if Canada doesn't change the rules here, be aware that other countries could do things like shut down flights. And we remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was thousands of Canadians who were stranded abroad. We haven't seen that to the same degree with variants. So I, I don't know if that is likely to happen again. Uh, but it is one of the things that they are warning Canadians about in terms of recommending against travel outside the country. I've always felt uh, in dealing with, with COVID, uh, whether it's the premiers or whether it's the federal government, there has to be a healthy balance between the scientists or public health officers, uh, the politician, and public sentiment. Um, does the federal government, uh, in your mind, have a good sense of public sentiment? Just my conversations over the weekend, and even uh, listening to c- listeners here on CKNW, there just seems to be a, a sense of COVID fatigue. And what role do you think that plays in the broader discussion um, by the Prime Minister and his ministers in regards to decision-making? And I know it's a tough question to answer, but my general sense is there just seems to be this overall COVID fatigue I'm hearing from, from the public. Like, we've just are fed up now. Yeah, I think you put it really well um, in terms of them having to balance things. Because when we asked the doctors about the science behind a travel ban last week uh, and the science behind some other things the government was proposing, they essentially said, look, we give our advice to the government. Their advice was pretty clear that they don't think travel bans work. But there are other factors at play. Well, what are those factors? It's public sentiment and it's politics. Uh, On the one hand, if you're the government who doesn't aggressively bring in measures and it turns out that a whole bunch of this has been imported uh, at some point in in a a border, you're going to take a huge political hammering for that because people will blame you for the lockdowns. On the other hand, the Prime Minister said late last week, you know, we know this sucks. Those were his words. This sucks. Um, He's clearly trying to be very expressive to people that I hear you. I also feel the frustration. Uh, But he, you know, has been using sort of this little saying of we're done with COVID, but COVID's not done with us. But I think they are aware uh, of that fatigue and I think they're very concerned about it um, and they, they're feeling it even with the provincial governments where they're giving them pushback. I mean there's been uh, certainly tension there all along but if you are a politician you are always thinking about the politics and public sentiment no matter how much a government says it's all about science and health and uh, you know they could be using very very science-backed policies. We know in the case of the travel ban scientists said that wasn't the case. It was not a science-backed policy. Um, so that element of the politics and of trying to get people to continue to follow this uh, as we now go into our second Christmas. And, you know, everyone's tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm sure you're tired of it. No one wants to spend the holidays like this. And so they have to find a way to try to balance that out. 
Now, on your program uh, uh, this past weekend, you had uh, Lieutenant General Jen, uh, Jenny Carignan. Uh, you also uh, had a, s- a short clips from the Prime Minister. It's a special that is airing on Christmas Day, your conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But uh, with uh, Ms. Carignan and with the Prime Minister, you talked a little bit about the sexual misconduct scandal that we hear over and over and over again uh, in the Canadian military. Um, Ms. Carignan talked about only dealing with the symptoms, not the root causes uh, of sexual misconduct in the military. Um, your sense of things, I'd love to hear your sense of things in regards to does the present leadership have a the, the, the backing of the Prime Minister, but more importantly, have the will to make the fundamental changes that can last a long time in regards to the military finally dealing with this issue? You know, I think on the changes, it remains to be seen. Um, I know you covered the military quite a lot, Joss. I have too. Um, I've seen this before. I've never seen it on this scale, though. And I've never seen it particular to the leadership-facing allegations. Um, both of those things kind of made this unique. And it seems like they are at least trying to figure out a way to change more than just the, the you know, what they were calling before the culture, and it is still cultural, but recognizing it's not just about... Um, sexual inappropriateness. It's about toxic power dynamics, which is tough in what is a hierarchical organization where you can order somebody to go fight to their death. There has to be an abnormal amount of control for the military to work. But at the same time, how do you do that where you don't have the wrong leaders in place who are abusing their power and not looking after their people? And I thought what General Carignan said about how they're changing, they select leadership. We've never heard them talk about that before, that they're looking for people with with more empathy, um, that you know, the person who runs the military isn't out uh, chasing down you know individuals in a war zone. They're there to run the military. So maybe someone who's really good at that doesn't also have to be the person who's a good you know kind of politician or good at knowing human resources and leading that way. And that they need to look at different types of people within the military to run it. For example, you typically never see someone who'd come from like logistics or HR or healthcare within the military mm-hmm. in that spot. It was always very much the front line warfighter. And they're taking a second look at that. They're also talking to subordinates of people, which is an interesting idea. And they're going to start testing them psychologically um, to look for traits. You know, is this person a sociopath? Do we have to be concerned that they don't have empathy for the troops that are under them? Um, so those are interesting things. I think it's really tough to execute. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to last time where it was basically, here's a bunch of PowerPoints of things you shouldn't say and places you shouldn't touch on your colleagues, which I think most people people were very well aware of from sort of basic logic, they're now talking about this as actually being a leadership problem and how do you change that? But even General Carignan says it's going to take at least five years to make those kinds of changes. Mercedes, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That was Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, talking about uh, the West Block program, which she hosts, talking about uh, travel uh, travel advisory that's there and potential travel ban. Uh, not happening yet, folks. I want to make sure you're aware of that. But certainly with Omicron, uh, everything is up in the air at this particular point. And of course, Mercedes talking about some of the challenges in military culture as well. And her special with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will air on Christmas Day on global television across this country. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. Our technical producer today is Phil Figueredo, who is on point 
with all the Christmas music. I'm going to nail it to you. I like the oldies. You've been really good with the classics, Phil. Thank you so much. Uh, gets me in the mood. I hope it does for you as well. Gets your day going. Well, commercial truck drivers can return to the Coquihalla this morning after being closed for a month. The highway connecting the lower mainland and the interior is set to reopen. Road crews worked around the clock to bring the Coquihalla Highway back online with restrictions for December 20th, weeks ahead of earlier estimates of when it uh, could be safe to drive. What will the immediate and long-term impact for truckers, uh, what impact will it have? Uh, well, let's uh, catch up with our good friend Dave Earl from the president, the president of the BC Trucking Association. Hi, Dave. Morning, Jazz. How are you doing this day? You know, it, it's it's a lot... I, just it's an exciting day it's a good day it's uh you know we're really looking forward to uh to getting that route open for commercial traffic uh it's just a good day jess yeah what kind of impact uh, has the shutdown of the coca had in regards to your members uh, their ability to make an income impact on businesses give me a sense of what what it's been like the last month or so well, what's been going on uh, with the closures? I mean, pre-disaster, the Coquihalla handled about 60% of the moves on any given day, and TransCanada handled about 20%. So, um, you know, we were down to a point of, uh, you know, about 15% of what would run uh, normally uh, on the Highway 3. That had to handle everything, uh, and it just can't. And so what we've seen and uh, is congestion, what we've seen is just, immense delay, delays in terms of timing, um, you know, and real safety concerns. So uh, when we hear that the Coquihalla is coming back for commercial movement, it, it really is a game changer for the drivers and the operators in the industry. How long do you see uh, before we get back to uh, a, a sort of pre-flood levels? I know we've got a lot of, a big portion of the Coquihalla that uh, still has to be rebuilt. There's significant challenges. When do you see it potentially getting back to what it was pre-floods? Yeah, no one's been able to really nail that down yet. Uh, this has been very much an all-hands-on-deck to, to get it back to this point and get it operating. But, uh, Jazz, I'd be, I'd be very surprised if, if it wasn't many, many, many months uh, before we get uh, back to anything approaching what we had before. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you really want to know what uh, highway conditions are like, you can listen to traffic uh, or you can talk to a truck driver because your folks mm-hmm. are out and about throughout this province and they know all the nooks and crannies. And what was what did you generally hear from truckers uh, pre-floods in regards to safety, in regards to how we've built our highways? What was the general impression, particularly the Coquihalla and some of these other areas that are now impacted? What were their general sort of complaints I'm just curious as to what truckers thought. Yeah, well, what we had on the Coquihalla was a completely modern, divided highway. Uh, I mean, it's ideal. It, it was the, the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was built, and uh, and it really handles uh, large vehicles very effectively. Um, you know, the other routes that we had were not built for those vehicles. They were built at a time when we didn't have uh, the resources to build what uh, we really wanted. Uh, building anything in British Columbia is just stupefyingly expensive. Yes. Um, you know, so, I mean, as, as we look at this and we talk about building back better, um, it's really to protect what we have um, and make sure that when we have these types of events in the future that we don't end up in this situation again. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very easy for me to say this. Uh, obviously, uh I don't have to worry about spending the dollars and justify any tax increases to the public. But, you know, we rely so much on the Coquihalla. Uh, is there anything else you think we should be building in the future uh, in regards to securing that supply line? I know you have the Fraser Canyon, you have other highways, you're talking about Highway 3. Is there anything else you think we should be 
considering building um, because as our province grows, more people are moving here. Uh, those supply routes are even more important moving forward. We have a, a massive port here in Vancouver, one in Prince Rupert, uh, an expansion potentially of the Vancouver port out in Tawasson. What kind of things should we be looking at in regards to securing these supply lines into the future? Jez, that's the exact question we need to ask is what are our options uh, we don't have the luxury of land and space. We've got a lot of land, we've got a lot of space, but there's an awful lot of these mountains in the way. Um, so we have to be really smart and intelligent about what we build out. Um, you know, what is the next thing that we need, um, you know, when we look at it? Uh, right now, in our minds, it's really all about protecting what we have. It's all about trying to make sure that what we have uh, can continue to function reliably and serve and serve our needs. Uh, as we're doing that, we really need to start thinking about what does this look like for the next 100 years? These are 100-year assets. You know? So what are we looking at? Is it a new pass somewhere? What do we put through it? What does it look like? Um, and we need to remember it's not just running down the coast into Oregon and California. That's important. It's linking the rest of our province to the coast and the rest of the coast to the rest of Canada as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're looking f- uh, forward to Christmas, and I've, uh, we were talking about this earlier, uh, you know, I've ordered a couple of things where I was told it was going to arrive before Christmas, and now it's not. And of course, they'll, they'll, they'll you know, right at the bottom, uh, supply chain issues or flooding in British Columbia. Um, this is hard to predict, but do you see something, some gifts getting in before Christmas now because of this open Coca-Hell opening today? Will it help a little bit? Oh, it's going to help, uh, w- without a doubt, in terms of the, the amount of traffic we can move. Uh, what does have to happen, though, is, again, it's the same problem we had when this happened. Is the supply chain has to adjust. It has to redeploy assets. Uh, you know, it has to make sure that it can still operate, you know, at, at, in this period of, of adjustment. It's going to get quicker. It's going to get more stable. Uh, it's going to get better. It's just going to take a bit of time. So will it help? For sure. Uh, is it going to clear the backlog? No. I, I wish it were. Yeah. Uh, do you know if truckers have been laid off or, or, or just have lacked work because of this as well? There must have been some in your industry that just are sitting at home, want to get back to work. And because the need the need is there, but obviously there's only so many vehicles they can get through. Has, have there been job losses or temporary job losses in the industry? Very, very few, if any. Um, hmm. have been really localized industries. Um, one of the most visible parts of trucking uh, is the container trucking business from the, from the port. Uh, but that represents about 2% of the industry in British Columbia. It's a critical part, and we all rely on it far more than any of us really realize. But it's not the majority of the work. Hmm. So particularly in the, in the longer haul world, these drivers never missed a beat. Um, they kept working. They kept running. Um, you know, there's certainly disruptions in terms of time. Uh, but if it took a load twice as long to get to where it was going, there's still had to be somebody at that wheel for all that time. So uh, I'm sure while there have been some, um, it's been really localized and very, very transient. Uh, Final question to you, just stepping away from floods and Coquihalla. uh, How difficult is it it for your industry now to attract people who want to drive long haul, drive trucks? Uh, I keep hearing about shortages in the United States in regards to attracting, attracting truck drivers. Do you have the same challenges here in British Columbia? Absolutely, Jazz, and it's been a perennial challenge. Uh, one of the things that our industry is doing, as with every industry, is changing and adapting. Um, it's a very, very different job than it used to be five or 10 or 20 years ago. Um, now, to be fair, to be sure, you're still driving if you're driving long haul, um, you know, for, for long periods of time. 
But the technology that's in place and the interaction that's in place and the dependency and the efficiencies that are there are just so much different. So uh, it's up to us to tell our story, you know, and really about what we're doing. And uh, we're doing more and more of that. But, uh, yeah, it's a perennial issue, that's for sure. Well, uh, I'm hoping you will be able to solve it, but I'm glad for today, which means uh, there's uh, a bit of, you know, roadways are open on the Coquihalla. Your members are going to be out driving and hopefully getting some of those goods and services and, and even some of those Christmas gifts to to our homes before Christmas. So thank you so much, uh, Dave. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. And to you, Jazz. Thanks for having me. All right. That's Dave Earl, president of the BC Trucking Association, talking about the fact that the Coquihalla Highway reopens uh, to some intercity travel, intercity bus buses, and most importantly for our truckers who can move all our goods and services and hopefully deal with some of the supply chain bottlenecks that we're all seeing and dealing with. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Thank you for joining us today. Well, this is the time of year, uh, December and parts of November, where something rather boring happens at City Halls, but very important. It's called budget consultation. It's where city councils present their 2022 budget. They offer it to the public and business leaders, and people can look through it. And where you, when you go through the budget, you get a sense of what the spending priorities for 2022 would be like. So which community center will be built, which uh, spending priority will be deferred for a year or two. But it's a democracy at work where people get a sense of where the spending is going to be and what your property tax increase and business taxes will be like. Well, Port Coquitlam, Vancouver, Delta, all these communities uh, have been in the news on CKNW the last little while about with through their budget consultation. Well, Surrey did not provide any of those documents until late last week, uh, 5.30, I think it was when it was offered. Um, and so there's going to be only four days of consultation next week, by the way, or this week, and then you move forward. And there's been hue and cry from the business community and residents as to why it was so late. They've accused Mayor McCallum and his slate uh, for hiding things from the public. Uh, Joining us to talk about the state of Surrey City Council and this particular uh, budget process uh, is uh, one of its councillors, Linda Annis. Linda Annis joins me now. Hi, Linda. Good morning, Chaz. So, Linda, I'm 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 not a Surrey resident. I'm watching this from afar, and I've covered uh, councils in my early days as a reporter for many many years. What is going on in Surrey, where on a late uh, late last week, uh, for a city that's the second largest in the province, we get the document, the big budget, uh, released so late in the process, not in mid November, but late December. What's happening in Surrey? Well, there's a whole lot of smoke and mirrors in the budget. It's very unfortunate. Uh, The residents deserve better. Normally, uh, the residents and businesses in Surrey would be given two weeks to review the budget and then come before council with their comments. This time, they've got four days, and it is not even being widely uh, advertised that the budget is now available. Uh, The only way residents or businesses can find out is what they hear on social media or what they hear through interviews like this. There's no newspaper ads or no, uh, not a lot of public um, engagement to let people know that uh, this is even indeed happening. So uh, as I was introducing our conversation here, uh, these documents sometimes are offered up as early as mid-November, so people have a sense of how their taxes are going to be spent. What is the end game here when this budget is presented so late during Christmas holidays, essentially? I mean, people have taken time off. um, They've got other things to worry about, shopping, dealing with family, and all those things that we all are busy with during holiday 
season, wrapping up stuff at work. Um, what is the end game here? What do you think uh, the majority slate, including Mr. McCallum, are potentially hiding? Well, I think they're leaving the city um, at coming up to next election in a very bad financial state. Last year, taxes went up significantly for some people as high as 17 or 18 percent. And we borrowed one hundred and fifty point six million dollars this year. We're borrowing another twenty point six million dollars. And we're also taking money from the city reserves, all, of course, which will have to be paid later. They're funding a lot of things uh, through a, a new um, fee that developers are paying when they're building in city centres and so on, which is going to make housing an awful lot less affordable in those areas. This isn't good financial management. and It's all really stemmed down to the Surrey Police transition. So uh, f- for our listeners, uh, the transition from a uh, the RCMP to a municipal force, the original budget was for $19 million. For that transition, uh, and then has gone up to f- uh, forty-seven million, and correct me if I'm wrong, at sixty-four million or just under sixty-four million. Now, uh, is that part of the challenge? Is that they don't want questions asked because they that that sixty-four million is still way below. Some have said it could cost up to potentially one hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollars, and that that this council and potentially the mayor just don't want to have any um, uncomfortable questions asked uh, in regards to the transition cost. I'm sure that's part of it. And just going through the budget, one thing that jumped out glaringly at me was the fact that there's a new police training facility that's budgeted for $4 million. That's not even being recorded as a transition cost. Had we stayed with the RCMP, we wouldn't be incurring that cost. And that's just one of many costs that are hidden um, in in various uh, budget areas. Yeah, I'm just, you know, Vancouver Council attracts a lot of attention, um, and it, as it should, um, you know, big decisions are made at, at city hall levels, and it impacts people's pocketbooks. Uh, municipal governments generally are the closest to people because people can go in and talk directly to elected officials. Surrey has uh, attracted so much attention, all the wrong type of attention. Um, I, I'm concerned in the sense that we're heading into an election year, uh, and things always get heightened in election years. Uh, I have not seen a, such a dysfunctional council. Like I said, I've reported on city council in my early days as a reporter for many city councils and school boards. I have not seen a more dysfunctional council uh, in my life. How did it get to this point where, number one, information isn't being shared with the public, lots of in-camera meetings, but even in council itself, there seems to be just disagreement on everything? It's an embarrassment, and as a city council, we need to do better. Surrey's reputation is at stake. We look like a bunch of fools uh, the way it's being run. And quite honestly, most of it stems right down to the Surrey police transition. Council has become very divisive over that. And as a result of that, the mayor is really restraining any public engagement um, for the residents of Surrey or businesses. People can't come to council and just voice concerns about anything. Uh, They can come and talk if they're uh, going to speak about a development application. And once a year and only once a year do they get to come and talk to us about our budget. And this time we're giving them four days to talk about it or four days to read it, I should say, and then to come and it's a big document, and it's hard for people to get through it all in four days, particularly during the Christmas season. Miss Annis, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That's Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor, talking about some of the budgetary woes. Uh, quite frankly, a conversation we shouldn't be having. It should have been done uh, many, many weeks ago, like other municipalities. Uh, but those are the challenges right now in, in Surrey, and I guess this week is uh, we'll be having that conversation right up to Christmas Day.
I'm Jazz Joel. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Thank you for joining us on your morning commute. I hope you're having a wonderful morning. And uh, like me, well, hopefully you're smarter than me and you've done your Christmas shopping. So it's an easy week into the holidays. Well, guys like me are out shopping last minute. I do this every year. I know, I know. I should learn somewhere. Somewhere along the way, I will I will learn. Not yet, but I'm getting there. Well, new COVID-19 restrictions aimed at curbing uh, surging case numbers amid the arrival of the Omicron variant will take into take, will, are in effect in British Columbia today. The new restrictions are slated to remain in place until January 31st, 2022, unless renewed by Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. Joining uh, me to talk about the new restrictions and the Omicron variant is Adrian Dix, BC's Health Minister. Mr. Dix, thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Um, I won't go through the the various uh, restrictions. Uh, We've gone through them, and I think the public are aware of them. Um, One of the things I noticed, uh, just listening to uh, our callers here on CKNW and just having conversations over the weekend, um, you know, my concern, uh, Minister Dix, is there's a bit of COVID fatigue out there. We're basically two years into this now. Uh, I think January is when we really started talking about the January of 2019. Any concern on your part that, British Columbians will not be buying into the regulations uh, and uh, restrictions that the, the province has announced due to COVID fatigue? Uh, Jez, there is COVID fatigue. Um, the COVID t- fatigue I'm most concerned about is in our healthcare system. It's now been essentially, as you say, two years of this in different forms of uh, an extraordinary effort to vaccinate, an extraordinary effort to contact trace, an extraordinary effort to test over a long period with all of the other things happening in healthcare. So I'm obviously very focused on uh, our healthcare workers, our healthcare professionals who are, uh, who are tired and are facing this new variant of concern. And if you look at what's happened in the last four or five days, you see across North America and across the world, dramatic increases in the number of cases, record cases in Ontario yesterday, record cases in Quebec, record case in Nova Scotia, but 10 times the level of transmission we're seeing right now in BC in the United Kingdom. And so this is happening everywhere in the world, and we have to exercise the control we have over it so that we can get through it. So the fatigue is there. There's no question. It's in my consciousness every single day, and we're all fatigued by it. But we also there's also things we can do to reduce our risk and things that we need to do right now. Yeah, but my question is not whether or not our our public uh, health workers are fatigued. I totally agree with what you're saying there. But my challenge is when I hear our callers, when I talk to people on the weekend, these are reasonable people. These are not people who don't like authority. But there is a tremendous amount of fatigue out there. And where people said, I've had enough. And my worry is the regulations that were announced – that they will not be as followed. They will not be followed as much as we would have hoped six months from six months ago or a year ago. There are folks who said, "I'm still going to hold that Christmas get together because I haven't seen my family. I'm going to. There's going to be more than ten people at my house. I've had callers on my own show last week saying that. Uh, is there anything that you will be doing differently in regards to enforcement, um, in regards to making sure people do not uh, break those regulations, or is this still going to be relying on people to do the right thing? Well, uh, we need to rely on people to do the right thing, and they have in British Columbia consistently. And I know people are fatigued, uh, Jazz, but the things we need to do are the things we've needed to do throughout the pandemic, which is 
uh, wear our masks in indoor public spaces and wash our hands and especially, especially stay home when we're sick. These have, this is advice we've given throughout the pandemic and is advice that has never changed. In addition, uh, you know, with respect especially to staying home when you're sick, but, uh, but also being cautious across, the, uh, across what we do. We have to reduce the number of social contacts we have, not because, uh, not because we want uh, this to continue. We surely don't, but because these are the things we need to do to stay safe. So, you know, uh, this is a way of exercising control under very unfortunate circumstances. The virus, it spreads to live, uh, Jazz. It doesn't argue. It doesn't, it's not concerned whether we're fatigued or not. And we want to make sure that those that we love um, stay well and are as protected as possible. And that means, you know, following these things that give us some control in uncontrollable times. Now, uh, as Omicron spreads, as you've stated, uh, there have been reports that BC vaccine clinics are closing for holidays. This weekend, we we saw long lineups at drop-in centres, drop-in test centres. Is the provincial government going to provide extra resources so these clinics remain open during the holidays and that we will not see these long lineups where there are two-hour waits at at, uh, these test centres? Well, first of all, the reason there are lineups at test centres is there's dramatically more people getting tested. So we have... Uh, we're we're applying tons of resources, and this is the way we can exercise uh, control uh, and exercise our control over this virus in these very difficult times. So uh, are we increasing the number of third doses we're giving dramatically? And we have week into week into week we're adding. By January, it'll be 1,000 pharmacies, 500 more. So we've been, uh, we're adding resources to, uh, to third doses, adding resources to testing, adding resources everywhere else. But we have to, of course, realize that there are limits to that and we have to uh, apply them uh, strategically and that's what we're trying to do. But yes, uh, everybody has been, I think, pretty much all in for a couple of years on this on this issue and we're going to continue to do that work in this period to exercise that control. So this is something we all need to do together, which is to use the tools that we have um, to uh, to deal with COVID-19 as a society. And then as individuals, we've got to exercise the control we have. And that means, yes, reducing our social contract, contacts and washing our hands and staying home when we're sick. These are all things we can do in, in these circumstances that are affecting every country in the world to make things better here for our families and, and people here. Now, Ontario residents 18 and older uh, can now book a COVID-19 vaccine booster through the provincial portal uh, in Ontario, uh, as long as it's been at least three months since they had their second shot. Um, I know uh, in this province, I've heard it from you, I've heard from others, we're following the science. But elected officials also have a role to play to understand public sentiment and to make sure we're doing all the right things. When will we catch up with Ontario? Because it's the other thing I've heard, Minister, over and over again, that booster shots, uh, I'm waiting too long. I'm waiting six months plus, and I know the science, and I understand what the, uh, the uh, Provincial Health Officer Bonnie Henry has stated, I know what you've stated, but there's a lot of British Columbians that say, I want my booster shot now. Six months is way too long. When are we going to catch up with Ontario? Well, uh, Jez, catch up with Ontario. We put our plan in place long before Ontario. On October 26th, our plan includes, for example, uh, vaccinating a whole group of people, 150,000, who are clinically extremely vulnerable, cancer patients and others. They're not doing that in Ontario. We've almost completed that task. 130,000 of those have received, of the 150,000, have received their booster shots. 
almost uh, we're getting close to 70% of all those over 70, over 50% of those over 65, not press releases, Jazz, but mm-hmm. actual booster shots. And we're going to continue to do that and indeed add capacity uh, to the booster shot program. That's why we added and we're adding about 1,000 pharmacies. So we are doing that. We did announce our program on October 26th, so it feels like when they announced their program five weeks later, they're somehow ahead of us. They're not. This is an issue of booking. This is an issue of delivering booster shots, and that's what we're trying to do in BC, based on people's uh, risk. And that's what we did. Minister, would you consider the three months, though? We did for the second dose, and that's what we're doing for the third dose. But would you consider the three months? Do you think we should head in that direction? I know the six months is what you're talking about, and I I, I understand the resources that you're putting towards this, but would you consider, as an elected official, as the Minister of Health, following the Ontario model of three months plus? Well, it's not a three-month model. It's when it's not about booking. It's about delivering shots, and that's what we're doing based on the science. So we're going to continue that and continue to increase the number of shots. And remember, Jazz, a lot more people got their booster, their second dose in June and July and August. So to meet that test, we're going to have to significantly increase our capacity. And finally, in addition to that, 100,000 children in the last few weeks have received their first dose and we're continuing that campaign. I want to encourage everyone to register their children because that is another way, first doses for children, that we can keep everyone safe. safe. Just to be clear, third doses, we're dramatically increasing the number of third doses we're doing and it will be, it will be, it was a record last week uh, compared to the previous week, compared to the week before that, compared to the week before that. And we're going to continue that, and you're going to see in January really a massive effort as we get more people who are eligible for the booster dose. And I want to just get an update on the rapid test. I know there's a tremendous amount of public sentiment and some frustration that it's taken us a long time to provide at-home COVID-19 rapid tests. To confirm, we should be seeing significant changes um, uh, in mid-January in regards to providing those rapid tests for British Columbians? Well, we're going to lay out our plan um, to increase the use of rapid tests tomorrow. We've used more than half a million of them in BC so far. We're using uh, tens of thousands every week. I think we're up to about 40,000 a week already. So we use rapid tests significantly. Remember, we have um, about 800,000 tests that could conceivably be used as take-home tests in BC now. We have about 1.2 million other tests that are being used uh, that require machines and healthcare workers that are being used as well and will work through as well. But 800,000 tests, uh, Jazz, even if we got the 11 million tests that the federal government is talking about for January and February, 11 million tests is two per person right, in BC. So we've, we've also got to use our rapid tests effectively in order to reduce transmission and to protect essential workers first and then use them across the system. So we're going to lay out a detailed plan uh, tomorrow, and you're going to see that for what we're doing. But I I, I would caution everybody that what's happening in other jurisdictions where we're setting records, of course, for COVID-19 in the last couple of days um, is, is not necessarily the a simple approach of just distributing what you have because you'll run out of them very quickly. You need to use them strategically, and that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Minister, final question to you. Uh, you know, we've all, we've collectively over the last two years, uh, you know, health, through healthcare workers, the public itself, we've done a good job overall in regards to dealing with this pandemic. But there are critics as well of you and your government that say we're always scrambling, especially in the third and fourth wave, and in this case as well, that at the end of the day, our response is too slow, too timid at times, uh, unlike other jurisdictions. What would you say to that? 
I'd say that uh, we announced our, our booster dose plan October 26th before anybody else. We, uh, unlike Ontario and Quebec, have a vaccine mandate in our healthcare system. 100% of our workers in long-term care are vaccinated. 100% of our workers in healthcare are vaccinated. And the British Columbians have done an excellent job throughout. This, this pandemic, uh, this virus, adapts all the time. It's mutating all the time. It spreads to live. And so we have to respond to that. And we are. No jurisdiction in the country, I don't think, has as good a record at keeping schools open, which is really important for the health and the well-being of children across the province. And that's to the credit of people in BC. And we're going to continue to have to adapt, especially in these weeks, to exercise the control that we have in a very difficult situation in order to keep people protected. So um, people can make the comparison. Of course they will. But in very important areas, vaccination vaccine mandates, uh, our booster dose campaign. We've been ahead of all the other jurisdictions. I don't think, though, just frankly, people are that concerned whether we're ahead or behind Nova Scotia. They're concerned about what happens here. And I think that uh, that means we have to do as individuals and as a government what we need to do now to help people with the Omicron variant, which is going to set, going to set new records in terms of number of cases we see in B.C. this week. Not may, will. And we have to take the steps we need to take to deal with that. Minister Dix, thank you for your time and Merry Christmas to you. Hey, anytime. Take care. Merry Christmas. If you were watching the news this weekend, you would have noticed the University of British Columbia says it won't cancel its uh, in-person exams, despite a mounting campaign from students concerned about the spread of COVID-19. In a statement released Sunday, UBC spokesperson Kurt Heinrich said the university met with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry on Friday to discuss the current COVID situation. On Friday, UBC's Alma Mater Society's Vice President of Academic and University Affairs, Ishana Bangu, penned a letter to UBC President Santa Ono and other university executives pressing them to cancel the exams. Ms. Bangu joins us now. Ishana, thank you so much. Hi, no, thank you for having me. So can you walk me through in regards to the letter that you sent to um, UBC President Santa Ono? What were the demands? What were you asking for? The ask is pretty um, simple, actually. We're just asking them to keep students safe by canceling in-person exams. And this was after a growing number of students, overwhelming number of students reaching out to us, voicing their concerns, um, as well as in light of the new um, rising cases, as well as the new restrictions by the PHO. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we do talk about how concerned students have been. Um, they're going to exams even when they have cold-like or flu-like or COVID-19-like symptoms. Some have even said that they have tested positive yet feel the pressure to go to exams and will continue to do so. So we're just very concerned about um, the spread through exam halls. Also, there are exam halls with about 800, 900 students, some of them, um, where students are just jam-packed. And it's just very um, upsetting and disturbing, to be honest. Now, have there been breakouts in uh, during exams uh, in previous periods, pre, pre-Omicron? So um, I think the, there's two exam periods. This is the first exam period ever since we've been back in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, yeah, I'm not too sure. Okay. But there have been the reports of, I, I believe there's a VCH letter about an outbreak in residence halls. 
um, and, you know, some more cases on campus as well. However, um, it's very difficult because we don't have transparent data to track those numbers on campus. The students don't know, are there six cases on campus or are there 600 cases on campus? Mm-hmm. The f- fact that the UBC, UBC has met with Dr. Bonnie Henry, and she certainly hasn't commented on this, uh, to my understanding, um, uh, is there a sense that from you and from students that UBC just wants this term done with? They will address whatever needs to be addressed in the next term, but they just want the final few days of university to be over with, and then they can look on, look forward to whatever changes need, may need to be made. They just want to get this, this, this term done. And to be honest, I think that's where the problem really lies. It's this reactive approach instead of um, taking the steps themselves, right? I mean, we keep hearing we have the green light from Bonnie Henry, or she hasn't said that this is high risk. But, um, I, I, and of course, I'm not an expert, but really that just kind of means that it hasn't reached a threshold where it would be extremely high risk. That doesn't mean that you can't take extra precautions and, um, you know, perhaps move out exams online to keep students safe. There's really no harm in doing that, right? I mean, you're just preventing overcorrection in the future and students want to stay safe. Nobody likes online school. So we're just asking them to prevent outbreaks where possible. Is there much of the exam period left? Because uh, exams have been, to my understanding, are not starting this week. They've been they've been going on for a little while now. Yeah, they have been going on, um, and uh, it's we we still have. I think the last exam day is on Wednesday. So yeah, time is running out, and I would say UBC is quite late, but it is better late than never. Mm-hmm. So when you say the exam halls, are they all eight, seven, eight hundred people, or is, or is that isolated? So, no, uh, it's not all 800, 900 people. Um, It can really range from some, you know, a couple of hundred to that number. But, um, you know, there are multiple exams a day. Like, really, I mean, I'm talking about several. I think at one time there can be around 27 sections writing exams. So it is a lot of students writing exams in these halls. Um, And just the fact that students are showing up symptomatic, I think that's the real concern. I've had a lot of students reach out about this as well. Um, And currently we're seeing kind of a fragmented approach where some instructors are told that they're allowed to uh, make that choice with their exams, but others are not told that. So um, it's just really disappointing to see UBC lag behind in this. We've also seen other institutions take similar measures, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we know UBC is capable. So, uh, so moving forward, uh, the the recommendations and regulations that um, uh, well, I shouldn't call them regulations, recommendations the provincial government brought in uh, as of today was stays on till the end of January, and and this is all going to depend on how um, we deal with Omicron over the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, what would you like to see done in the new semester in January? Uh, because Omicron will still be here, uh, we're expecting uh, the numbers to continue to grow. They've doubled in a week; that we could potentially double again. And, uh, Dr. Henry has said we could potentially have 2,000 cases of, of COVID in this province every single day uh, in the near future. What would you like to see UBC do in the new semester in January? Well, to be honest, our focus is really um, on the exam period for now because, you know, it's just we only have a couple of days left. So I think the new year, we're, all we keep communicating to the universities that they need to let students know as soon as possible instead of, you know, Um, the last day and we have seen them be like I said very reactive in their approach so just keeping students in the loop is what we've asked for as Mm -hmm. of now. So what are students specifically saying to you I mean just in regards to not just the exam period but just in regards to what it's like going in to uh, a class of 
200 people in an era of COVID. What kind of stories have you heard from students? I think um, the symptomatic stuff where students are showing up with cold-like, cold-like symptoms, COVID-19 type of symptoms is, is most concerning for students. And you couple that with just not having any information about cases on campus. Like there's no database. It's almost, it's quite secretive, right? There, I, see, I believe there's one undergraduate student who runs an anonymous COVID tracker account where they try to gather um, information from, you know, instructors. But um, that's a huge concern that students just don't know what's happening about COVID on campus. Um, that's been that's been a primary concern. Um, so just yeah. I just want to I'm just curious about the the anonymous uh, uh, social media account. So let's say there was an outbreak of one or two students in a class of let's say 30 people. Are you saying that isn't made public to students or in regards to what building it was, what class it was, if they were there? No, it's not actually. So if an instructor and I believe there was at some point even communication gone to individual instructors that. They shouldn't be sharing that or, you know, they really don't need to share that, um, you know, that kind of messaging. But, no, there isn't any database or any, like, requirement that students be aware of that. And they stick with the, if you're a close contact, public health will contact you. Um, and they keep citing privacy concerns. But, you know, in a class of 200 or 300 people, if you know one student has COVID, it's not it's not exactly, you know, nobody's going to go around trying to figure who it was. Wow. Uh, Ms. Bungu, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you so much for having me. All right. That's Ishana Bangu, Vice President of Academic and University Affairs at the UBC's, at UBC's Alma Mater Society, talking about the fact that they are concerned over in-person exams. And you can imagine those exam halls, some of them, you know, holding seven, 800 people. But uh, the UBC says they have uh, consulted with Dr. Bonnie Henry and they won't cancel in-person exams. Uh, as there is uh, three days left up until Wednesday. And I'm I'm suspecting uh, things may change in the new year in regards to how we deal with Omicron. But right now, UBC said it's going to push through uh, in regards to the final three days of exams uh, at UBC.